anytime that you go on a trip like this of any kind, uh, if you went to uh, the Grand Canyon, let's say, or some other place like that, and you came back and you tried to show people uh, what you had learned, there's sort of that temptation to say, we had a great time, I wish you had been there. And everybody says, well, okay, I wish I'd been there too, but I wasn't there. But uh, is, is that really all there is to it? And I've talked to all of our people who went on the trip and kind of warned them about that tendency that could be that way. Here's the unique opportunity we have. We learned so much about the scripture while we were over there. Well, this is the Bible that you and I love and appreciate. And if there's any way that we can use our experiences, especially in this case in the Holy Land, to uh, help you love the Word of God even more and to see more about our precious Lord that's really what we're. That's really what the challenge is. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do tonight, in a presentation that I've entitled "The Promised Lord in the Promised Land." So, gentlemen, if we could have the uh, the slides up at this time, and I will bring it up here on my laptop and hope it works as well as it did. There it is at uh, the very beginning. And if I thank you for sending me the other cordless mic there too. Uh, if I start to crackle, I'll flip over uh, to that mic. If you have your Bibles, uh, go with me over to the book of Zechariah just for a moment. Zechariah chapter 2. Now, remember, Zechariah the prophet was uh, one of the prophets that was very burdened about the rebuilding of the, uh, the temple. You remember that uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, they, they went back and Nehemiah's special charge was to build the wall, the wall around Jerusalem. And yet, uh, the real difficulty was that uh, the temple of God, the house of God, was not rebuilt for a while. Uh, take a look, read through the book of Haggai sometime soon and see how Haggai was warning the people. He's saying, look, you, you dwell in your beautifully paneled houses, and yet the house of God is lying waste. Uh, he was very burdened about getting the temple rebuilt. Zechariah was very burdened about getting the temple rebuilt. I find it interesting in Zechariah chapter 2, notice if you would in verse 10, when he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. The reference to Zion is to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy that is still future for us, that uh, many nations will be joined together in that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's coming, and in the millennium, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. Now read on and look in in verse 12 and following. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion, note the words here carefully, in the holy land. I could be mistaken, but I believe that's the only time in Scripture when you have it put exactly that way, in the holy land. When you hear people talk about uh, Israel as the holy land, why do they call it the holy land? And uh, the answer is, this verse right here is telling us that. Other places it refers to the land as holy and the land that was promised to them. And shall choose Jerusalem again. The Lord had chosen Jerusalem before. 
Remember, the people had rebelled against the Lord, and uh, here he's saying he, he's choosing Jerusalem again. I mentioned this yesterday morning in the men's breakfast. If you were to take a, a course in comparative religion at uh, any secular college, one of the things they'll tell you about your Bible and about the Jewish people and about Israelites is these people just had a genius for religion. Uh, they, they they're not any different than anybody else. They just have a genius for religion. <laughs> and all you have to do is start reading your Bible and say, these people don't have a, a genius for religion. They have a genius for rebellion, maybe, against the Lord. And the reason we would point that out is to say what you actually have in your Bible is the revelation of God himself. It is God's word, and God is revealing himself through his word. Now, I mentioned this briefly in this morning's message, but stop to think about it this way. The reality in which you live was designed by God for his greatest and highest glory. Does God do second best? No, he never does. He never does second best. It is always ultimately for his highest and greatest glory. Now, you and I wrestle with that. I mean, we think about the pain, the heartache, the troubles, uh, all the things that are associated with the curse of sin and death that are all around us. And we say, really? Is this, I mean, is this like God's greatest and highest glory? And the answer is, it absolutely is. This is his greatest and highest expression of his glory. And for all eternity, we're going to be, it talks about in Ephesians 2, about the manifold grace of God that we're going to be seeing for, for all of eternity. Well, one of the things that means is that God specifically chose this holy land. He specifically chose this promised land. Now, I mentioned it briefly in the message this morning. There are more geographical references in the first 20 chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, of the 66 books of the Bible. There are more geographical references in those first 20 chapters than there are in all of the Koran, all of the Book of Mormon, and the other uh, religious books, the Vedas and other things like that. They don't even deal with uh, anything closely related to geography. What the Lord has done is he has revealed his glory in specific places and specific times and really caused us to see who he really is. So when you and I talk about Israel as the promised land, don't miss the fact that it's really ultimately about the promised Lord. You can see this if you turn over to Micah chapter 5 just for a moment. Go over to Micah. You know this passage, I think, very, very well in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And here's what it says. But thou, Bethlehem of Freyta, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, uh, to, that is, to be ruler in Israel, catch these words, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. What you see on the slide there, that glistening city in the distance, that is Bethlehem, as seen from Jerusalem. We're on a uh, kibbutz here that is in Jerusalem. You're looking at a distance of not more than five miles away, and you can see Bethlehem uh, from there. What that means is that you're looking across the, the shepherd's fields, 
Remember where the angels, Luke chapter 2, they appeared to the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night and uh, they uh, proclaimed glory to God in the highest. It's, it's things like this of being able to go to places like, like Bethlehem today. And this is Bethlehem you can see there in the distance. To be able to go to places like Bethlehem today and know this is exactly what the Lord said that he did at that place, at that time, at a specific time. When Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, we refer to that as the Latin Vulgate, it was so well known where Jesus had been born that Jerome went to the very cave that you would find there in Jerusalem. You can look up these pictures online. This is now part of the Palestinian area, and one of the things that means is that if we had gone there, it would have taken all day just to go there and to see it and to come back. So it would have taken a whole day out of our trip. But uh, Harriet and I were able to do that in 94, and I know that some of you who are watching this, you've also been able to go to Bethlehem in the past. But the point is this, and that I put in the opening slide, we're looking for, we're seeking for, we're longing for the promised Lord in the promised land. You know, is is the big issue here that, you know, this is the land, it's referred to in some translations as God's pasture land, uh, his holy land, the promised land. Is it about the land? Well, ultimately, no, it's not about the land. It's about the Lord, the promised Lord who communicated to us through the land. And that's what makes it so fascinating. So whether or not you are ever able to go to uh, Israel uh, at all, or even if you're not able to go back, some of you have been and you're not able to go back, there are so many wonderful resources online right now that you could go to and you can look up and you can seek after. And you would find in, in many cases, if you're reading along in your Bible and you see a geographical reference, you will find that some scholar somewhere has done some work on that and can tell you more about that. And I was joking with uh, a couple of people about this. It, it, it You know, you've seen the... Um, You've seen the children's books where you open the book up and there's this pop-up that appears, you know, in the, the cardboard pop-up that kind of appears. It, it's almost that way when, you, when you've been over there and you're, and you're reading your Bible, it's like, oh, yeah, I know. I've, I've been to that very place. I've seen, I've seen exactly what that's talking about. But we're certainly not taking pride in that knowledge. What we're doing is we're rejoicing that we have the opportunity to think about things like the birthplace of our Lord and the fact that God promised that he would send his son at a particular time and he did it exactly the way that he said he would do it. Remember in this morning's message I was talking about in Isaiah 42 through 46, Isaiah chapters 42 through 46, that the Lord basically said, okay, here's how you can know that you can trust me. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen, and then I am going to fulfill that to the letter. Sometimes he would do it very suddenly. And he says that, that when I do that, you will know. You will know it is the Lord. And chief among his promises, we talked about this a few weeks ago in the Sunday evening service about the sufficiency of Christ as we celebrated the Lord's table together. 
If you were to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you see that in him, in Christ, are all the promises of God confirmed as, as yes and amen. And one of the things that means is, Romans chapter 8, that when it says about the Lord, the, about the Lord Jesus, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? That's what you're looking at. So when we look at the land tonight, I hope that you'll very carefully think about the Lord. The Lord transferred his, the place where he labored, he transferred over to a little town called Capernaum. And this would be on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So I've, I've drawn this out. Those of you who can see my hands up here, you know that we've drawn this out before. This way is north in our auditorium to our right. This is way is south to our left. That the Sea of Galilee would be up here in this region. And then these uh, stairs right here in the front especially would represent the Jordan River going down to the Dead Sea. The Burks are sitting at the bottom part of the Dead Sea there tonight. So wave at the Burks and you see where they are. The TOs are sitting up here closer to the shore of the, the Sea of Galilee. Well, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, you have this place called Capernaum, city of Nahum. As far as we know, it's not the, city, not the Nahum of Scripture. Jesus transferred his headquarters there. Now, where he had been before, and what I'm going to try to do tonight is use the, um, the laser pointer here just a little bit. The, the laser pointer, can you see the laser pointer? It's aimed at the screen. If you were looking for the city of Nazareth, you would look right about here where uh, the organ is, right here across from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was up there in Nazareth. This area right out in here that would be around the organ, this would be the area of uh, the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Armageddon. And what Jesus knew was this. He knew that the, the highways that ran through the Holy Land. Now, let me pull back for that just for a second. Remember, we're looking at the Fertile Crescent. So you got down to the south, you've got Egypt, and then the Israel becomes the land bridge between Africa and Asia and Europe. Everything has to travel right through here. Let that sink in for a moment. Here's what the Lord is doing is, for his highest and greatest glory, he is causing that the world's nations would have to travel through the very place where he's revealing his glory. I think this is all part of what Galatians refers to, what Paul referred to in Galatians as the fullness of times, whether it was uh, the Greek language or the Roman roads or the uh, Jews being dispersed and their longing for the Messiah. It's all part of God's magnificent plan. Well, one of those highways called the Way of the Sea or the Via Maris went straight up the coast, but then it would run into the Carmel, the Carmel Range, the Mount Carmel Range, which meant that they weren't going to go up and over. They were going to come inland, and where they would go would be to the very top of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's the place that, for instance, Matthew, you read about Matthew, called Levi in the Scripture, he was sitting there in customs. He was uh, uh, collecting the taxes there. That's the place that is called uh, Capernaum. You can go to this place today. It is one of the most elaborate uh, remains of the synagogues. Now, what you're looking at here is in these columns. That's not from Jesus' time. This would be from 
the Byzantine period. You remember he had Rome and then uh, Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire after the Romans. But so many people, such as the Crusaders, would go back to these places and they would go looking for the very specific places in Scripture. Uh, Constantine, you remember, 313 A.D., he, as I said, he was a believer. He actually sent his mother to the Holy Land to specifically look for the places where they could uh, be rebuilt and established as places that Christians could gather. And what they would do sometimes is the Romans had come in and built temples to Zeus or temples to other gods right on top of the Christian sites. I mean, they wanted to basically defile the Christian sites. And she came along and had permission from her son to tear down those temples and to build churches and synagogues and things like that in its place. So what you're looking at here is uh, when you're standing here at Capernaum, you just have the idea when you think about Peter's house. Uh, there's a church that I didn't put in here that's just to the right of this, and it actually looks like a ship uh, over uh, to the right. And it's a reminder that this would be the the home base of Peter. It's where Jesus chose to place his home base. It's where he chose to shine his light. But there is an important reminder about this, and you can see it in Scripture, and the reference is not coming to me right now, but it's a little later in Jesus' ministry. Remember when he said, Woe unto you, Capernaum. You're looking at the remains of Capernaum here. Woe unto you, Capernaum, and woe unto you, Bethsaida. Bethsaida would be just a little over to the east of uh, Capernaum. Why did he say, woe? I mean, he, he labored there. He served there. He preached there. Why would he say, woe to them? And what he was pointing out, he said, why? He said, Tyre and Sidon. Well, I'm going to use the laser pointer here. Tyre and Sidon would be way out here on the Mediterranean coast. And on the Mediterranean coast, uh, he's saying Tyre and Sidon are going to rise up in judgment against Capernaum and Bethsaida. Why, why would he say that? And the answer is that because Jesus Christ himself, the very Son of God, preached and proclaimed his word. You can't argue that he was a bad teacher. He was perfect. I mean, in everything he did, he was perfect in the way he communicated uh, the word of God to all of them. Uh, basically, you walk away with this principle that light received brings more light, but light rejected brings darkness. That is a warning call to our United States of America right now. I want you to think about how common it is to be able to turn on the radio and hear Bible teaching and hear, you know, you have to be discerning, but there's good Bible teaching out there to be able to use the internet and, and just how we have been amazingly blessed with resources about the scripture to be used in English. Dear friends, the very same warning that applied to Capernaum that he said, woe unto you, Capernaum and Bethsaida, if the things the Lord said that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Then, you want to hear the really big one, he said that Sodom and Gomorrah, you know the story of Sodom, you know how it was destroyed, he said they would rise up in judgment against places where the Lord, and you say, why on earth? I mean, you don't, you don't have the same kind of abominations, as far as we know, going on in Capernaum and Bethsaida. You don't have the same kind of abominations going on there, 
but we're missing the point. The point is that God had given so much light, so much light and wisdom and understanding in that place that if the people failed to embrace it, they failed to repent, that they would be held accountable for that. And that's exactly why he's showing that. So here's the home base area of the Lord Jesus and the, and the way he served and the places he served that you can go to today and uh, just see it's they're constantly uh, doing more digging in these areas and they're finding more things. There's places that I like to monitor on the, the internet where you can see the newest archaeological finds and news about what's uh, coming out of there. Well, you know that the Lord labored there on the Sea of Galilee. We had the opportunity to go out in a boat, very much like the one pictured here. In fact, I think I took this one from our boat. Um, We talked about in a recent message why you have these storms that come up so suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. And I pointed out that you have going all the way up to Mount Hermon, the, the range that's 28 miles long up to the north, And it it rises at one point up to 9,000 feet, all the way from there, coming all the way down onto the Sea of Galilee. And you can see it here in the pictures. You're seeing that you have these mountain ranges. You can't see it off in the distance. There's even more mountain ranges that are coming down. That any cool air, if if and you know how this is up in the mountains, when the air begins to cool a little bit, just picture that that cold air comes cascading down almost like a, a snowball and an avalanche of air, in this case, that would come down. And it comes rushing out upon uh, the Sea of Galilee because it is, in fact, uh, below sea level. But it is a very, very beautiful area. Here we are up on uh, top, of, top of the Arbel Cliffs looking out, and you can just barely see the the sun has broken through right here, and you can see some of the uh, mountains that are here uh, right around this area. This is the place that our Lord Jesus Christ chose to use as a laboratory to teach his disciples. Uh, when I teach others, uh, one children's lesson I love to teach, and it goes like this. As Peter walked the shore each day, he learned above all to obey. And you can take that brief poem and you can illustrate it with a number of things about Peter and what he learned about the Lord. The Lord communicated the lessons in a way that were, they were just so practical and that, and that here is Peter. When you think about the fishermen who were out on the Sea of Galilee, these were businessmen. This is what they did as a business. And yet that's the very situation that the Lord used to call them to to follow after him. And so the Sea of Galilee, in and of itself, we could spend the entire trip going all the way around. We went to places like Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from. That was um, Harriet and I, I, that was our first chance to go to Magdala. We went to places like Peter's Primacy. Peter's Primacy is where... Uh, there's the fascinating passage in Mark where right after the resurrection, the angels said to the women, tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before them into Galilee. Well, question, why did he say and Peter? And the answer is that Peter had messed things up so bad. I mean, he had denied the Lord with cursing 
that it would have been very easy for him to conclude, hey, I'm not one of the Lord's disciples anymore. And yet the God of hope who fills us, a God of peace who fills us with all joy and peace and believing that we may abound in hope, he wanted Peter to know that he still had plans for Peter and he could still use Peter. It's those kind of lessons out here all around the Sea of Galilee, uh, opposite of where we're standing, and I didn't, I didn't include these pictures, there is a place called Kursi, K-U-R-S-I. When you read about the maniac of Gadira, the one who was possessed uh, by demons, and Jesus said, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion. And there are some indications. I, I have heard it said that that refers to as many as 600 demons. I've heard it refers to as many as 1,000 demons. Our guide this time said it referred to 10,000 demons. So that'll be a question. In any case, there were a whole lot of demons. And opposite from where we are over in Kersey, the big question for quite some time had been, well, are we sure this is the right place? Because where are the tombs? That story is very plain that he was living among the tombs. So when our guide took us to the place this time called Kersey, the first thing I asked her was, well, did they find tombs? Did they find a cemetery? She said, yes. Three years earlier, in, uh, since our last trip, they had actually found tombs down there. That was a really exciting and significant find because there's only a couple places on that side where the pigs could have rushed down. You know, the, the Lord cast out the demons and cast them into the pigs there's only a couple places where they could have uh, rushed down to the sea and over uh, like that. Or other places, there are just too many obstacles in there. And sure enough, they found uh, a cemetery there. So that was a really significant find. And uh, I think from what she said, they're going to be um, investigating those more carefully in days to come. Remember in Matthew chapter 16 that there were so many things happening with his disciples that the Lord said, uh, let's go to a different place. And they actually went to a Gentile place. Now, in this case, I'll use the laser pointer here, and I'll kind of point at the wall over here. They're going all the way up here to the north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. The reason they call it Caesarea Philippi is over on the Mediterranean, you have a place called Caesarea Maritima. It was a port that... Uh, Herod built, that was actually considered by the Romans to be the capital of the area during the Roman period, the Caesarea Maritima. You can read about it in Acts. When, uh, when Peter was imprisoned, I'm sorry, when Paul was imprisoned uh, there on the coast, that would have been in Caesarea Maritima. This is Caesarea Philippi, sometimes called Banias, B-A-N-I-A-S, or Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S. Remember that the Lord took his disciples up there to this region, and he made this comment to them. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, that phrase, gates of hell, actually shows up a couple times in the Old Testament. I personally think that's what he was referring to. But from the local culture, this, this uh, cave that you see right here, it was referred to in the mythology of that era, both Romans and Greeks. They referred to that as the gates of hell. Their mythology said that this was a 
bottomless cave. It went down to the mythological uh, river Styx, S-T-Y-X. But what Jesus was taking his disciples to this place to ask them a specific question. And the, the, the question was, who do men say that I am? Now, this is related to this morning's message where the question was, who is this? Jerusalem's asking, who is this? Jesus took his disciples up there and took them away from the, the ministry where they were constantly surrounded and people were pressing in on them. He took them up to this Gentile area specifically to say to them, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a great prophet, that prophet. Those are all wonderful um, religiously significant things, right? <clears throat> but then he said, who do you say that I am? And here's Peter who says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. Uh, it would be very easy for us, especially those of us who have uh, been in Sunday school or labored in the word for a while to say, yeah, he said, you are the Christ. And think about this for a moment. Here is a Jewish man who has been in the synagogue for his entire life. They told us when we were at the synagogue at Magdala that uh, it was they had learned that one of the things that would commonly happen is the fishermen would be out early in the morning on the Sea of Galilee, and because that's one of the best times to fish, early in the morning, late in the afternoon. At midday, they would come up and go to the synagogue just to listen to the reading of Scripture and hear the discussions of Scripture. So men like Peter would have been very well-versed and would have heard the Scripture rehearsed over and over again in his hearing. And so for a man like Peter there at Caesarea Philippi to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what did Jesus say to him? He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Dear friends, that's a good reminder for every one of us. The only reason any one of us ever came to know the Lord is because the Lord turned the light on. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 is very plain about that. Just as God caused the light to shine in the darkness, he shined in our hearts. That's the same thing that's being said there in Matthew 16. He said, blessed are you, um, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. So the Lord began there, according to Matthew chapter 16, he began to explain to them, here's what it really means to be the Messiah. Up to this point, they were thinking that the Messiah would come in as a mighty political and um, military ruler, and he would rule and reign and, and subdue the nations. And by the way, Remember, Pastor Rod and I both have been preaching about this from the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 tells you there is a day when Jesus Christ is coming to rule and reign as a mighty military and political leader. He is coming to do that, but he came first as our Savior to save us from our sins. And the reminder is one day he will come as our judge well, these men at uh, Caesarea Philippi, his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, they have seen the scriptures about him being a mighty military and political leader, and they're saying, when, when, when's that going to happen? And he says, well, first, here's what you need to know. 
Son of Man is going to be taken to Jerusalem, and he is going to be tortured by the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, uh, the three greatest classes in uh, Israeli society, Jewish uh, society. He's going to be put to death, but he's going to rise again from the dead. And it was so troubling that people like Peter really had a hard time with that. You read on through Matthew, and you find that he continues to come back and introduce that to them, or I should say, remind them of what he said here at Caesarea Philippi. So this is a fascinating area. By the way, the, the water that you see here, and I, I made the picture there at a stream, far to the north, I mentioned earlier, would be the, the, the Mount Hermon Range, 28 miles long, a range up there, extending up to 9,000 feet. That, that entire ridge is made up of um, permeable uh, limestone, for instance, and it's it's constantly snow capped. Even even during the winter, um, during in the summertime, you, you would find there's snow up there. And what they've discovered is that inside Mount Hermon, there are these uh, reservoirs or repositories that over the years the waters have carved out. They're called karst, K-A-R-S-T-S. They're just full of water. And so that water comes out at places like you're seeing here at uh, Caesarea Philippi. It comes out at uh, Dan. We won't go. It won't go there tonight. But if you looked in the book of Judges and saw that the Danites, who were supposed to take the area around Tel Aviv over here, they went up and actually took over the uh, city of Laish up there in the top. Uh, you find that these amazing water flows come out. The area known as Dan is the headwaters of the Jordan River. So the Jordan River, ultimately, what you're looking at here at Caesarea Philippi, that, uh, that flows into that as well. Well, let's go down to Jerusalem. And here I just took this quick picture as we were walking by. We were pretty close to Fortress Antonio. I just wanted to show you a picture of this is what Jerusalem looks like today. And uh, when we look back in history, it probably wasn't all that different than what you're seeing here. For instance, you can see, oh, the arch up here. You wouldn't have the telephone and power lines and, and even some of the electrical stuff that you see here and probably not even some of the uh, iron bars like you're seeing there on the windows. But this old city is, uh, is very, very much as it was in the times of the Lord Jesus. And you can just kind of picture that in your mind of Jesus walking in those places, as I mentioned this morning, and I'll show again tonight, the, the southern steps of the Temple Mount. We know, for instance, he labored there. The picture that you're looking at here is found down in the basement of what is known as Fortress Antonio. So this morning I was talking about this uh, just a little bit, that you have on the uh, eastern side, uh, the way I illustrated it this morning was, that if this were, if the front of the pulpit were the eastern gate, or sometimes known as the golden gate, that what you have is you have Fortress Antonio that was placed right there on the Temple Mount. Now, Fortress Antonio, if you were facing out in that direction, Fortress Antonio would be back over to this side over here. And the reason that Herod uh, put that Roman fortress right there next to the Temple Mount was because um, the Temple Mount was one of the big hot spots in the world at that moment. I mean, if, if a riot were going to break out, if there were going to be trouble, it's probably going to be on the Temple Mount. 
So Herod, uh, he's called Herod the Great because he was such a great architect and built so many things. He decided to build Fortress Antonio. Take a look at the picture that's up here on the screen, and if you look really, really closely at it, you can see that it looks like uh, somebody has taken a chisel and just kind of uh, chiseled something in there. And the more they did research on this, here's what they actually found out. You're looking at a game board. You're looking at a game board that was used by bored soldiers as they tortured their the people that they were supposed to torture and uh, dealt with those they were preparing to crucify. And uh, they've done a lot of archaeological research on this, and I think you can see, I hope it's plain enough there on the, the, the uh, screen, Notice the word there that is placed. This is, a, this is basically a game board. So what you're looking at here is a game called uh, Regis or a King. There's another name for it, and I've forgotten what it was. They told us while we were over there. I can look it up for you if you'd like to know what the other name was. You remember when Jesus Christ was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers tortured him, you remember that they treated him like a, they called him, oh, you're a king. Well, great, we, we, have, a, we have a game board, you know, that's called king. And, and what they were doing was they were throwing dice, throwing lots, and they all knew how the game worked. And what they were doing, they were, they were doing things like uh, putting a crown on his head, and what was that crown made out of? Those of you children in the room, crown of what? Crown of thorns. And you can actually see in uh, there in the area, you can find places. This is up on the Mount of Olives. You can see uh, thorn trees. I mean, look at the size of those thorns, would you? Now, we don't know for sure that it was these, it was the thorns of this particular kind of tree but it does give you a little idea of what our Lord Jesus went through for all of us. Um, let me just pause right there to uh, ask the question this way. Folks, uh, what, what was happening here was, let's see if I can go back to where I want to go. Uh, let's see. Here, here's this game board. What were people doing with Jesus with this game board? They were just playing games. They were just playing games with Jesus. Are you and I guilty of just playing games? Of instead of falling down before him and worshiping him, are we guilty of just using him like a game piece on our game boards for the silly games that we play as human beings? I find that a very convicting thought. I, I found myself really pondering Lord, is that what I'm doing? Am I just playing games with you? Because it's clear that's what those Roman soldiers were doing with him. But Jesus Christ bore that crown of thorns for you and me. He bore it in such a way that it caused him uh, great pain and great, great difficulty. The building you're looking at here, if you could see it from a distance, and uh, when I show you a picture here in a minute from the Mount of Olives, you might, I think I might be able to point it out to you. This is called Dominus Flevit, and it was built in the 1950s. It is a teardrop-shaped building, 
a teardrop-shaped church, as you can see. And the little bottles that are there, there's four of them that uh, surround this teardrop shape that's up at the top. Remember in Scripture when David says, you, you put my tears in a bottle? That's what it's communicating. And I found it interesting this time we were there that they had planted these, these thorn trees all around uh, there off in the distance this time, you can see see the gold dome over to your left. You can see uh, that's the uh, that's the shrine, the, the Muslim shrine there of uh, on the Temple Mount. But look at the size of those thorns, and just for a moment, think about what Jesus Christ went through for you and me being tortured as he was, being mocked as he was, being beaten as he was. Folks, this is the creator of all things. This is the creator of all mankind. And yet he loved us so much that he came as our redeemer. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say seeking after the promised Lord in the promised land and looking for him and understanding that even in God's divine providence, He designed it such that his own son would bear a crown of thorns for us. It's very humbling when you stop to think about what he's done for all of us. I showed you this picture this morning on the ascent going up to uh, Jerusalem. You can't see it very well here because we couldn't see it very well when I took this picture. But this is actually Jerusalem right up here. So what that means is this is not the... uh, very path that uh, Jesus would have taken, for instance, from Jericho going up, but it is a similar path. It's nearby, it's parallel path. But this is what it was like. Uh, We went through the Psalms of Ascent here a while back where we uh, looked at those and saw the um, what what happened as they made the ascent up to the uh, up to Jerusalem, how they went across the Jordan River. So to your to your back here would be uh, the city of Jericho. So what this means is you're looking to the west, you have Jericho to your back, but this is what it would have been like to go uh, up the ascent. And they sang the Psalms of Ascent as they got up. And you can just barely see uh, Jerusalem. This was our, our first time to go to this particular lookout, but I found it very interesting just to think about Jesus uh, going up there to that place. And here, once again, from this morning is the uh, the Mount of Olives. You can see, um, you can't see it very well, and I think I am trying to find Dominus Flevit. I think that's it right there. Uh, the picture I showed you a minute ago of the tear shop, uh, teardrop-shaped building. Um, one of the things that is routine you know, when you go to Israel is to actually make this descent. Your bus will take you over here to the top of the Mount of Olives, and you get a chance to go down and down and down and down. And uh, you're actually looking here, for instance, at uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, from this morning's message, uh, the way I was illustrating it was you have the Eastern Gate or Golden Gate. You go down into the Kidron Valley, also called the, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Then you come up, and this would be the Garden of Gethsemane. So Gethsemane would be uh, right here in this area. And then you go on and on and up, upward to uh, the Mount of Olives. 
When you think about the Mount of Olives, remember what the book of Zechariah tells you about the Mount of Olives, that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven from there, Acts chapter 1, and Zechariah predicted that's where he will return. And when he returns, he will divide this mountain. When he comes back, there will be a great earthquake. This will be divided. Also, uh, there's an interesting note over in Ezekiel uh, chapters 47 and 48 that tell you that out from under the eastern side of the temple. So they believe that the temple would have been right in line with the eastern gate. And uh, that's, that makes it interesting because that's the, uh, the mosque, the golden mosque. You have two mosques up on the Temple Mount. One is called the Mosque of Alaksa, which means the end of the journey. And then you have this shrine, this gold shrine. That's not right in line with the Eastern Gate. The uh, commentators from the Mishnah and others, others like that were emphatic that the temple was actually in line with the Eastern Gate. And so what that means is there's a space there on the Temple Mount. Now, could it ever work out politically and everything else like that for there to be a, uh, a temple on the, on the Temple Mount right next to that mosque? Um, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But the scripture is pretty plain that there is going to be a temple. And when the Antichrist comes, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to exalt himself in the temple. Uh, I didn't put any of the pictures. In fact, you couldn't take pictures while we were there. But there's a place called the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute, they are Jewish uh, people, Jewish scholars. And what they have done is they have prepared everything. And I mean everything that would be necessary for temple worship because they are so determined to return to temple worship down to the harps, down to the clothing, I mean, down to the specifics of what it talks about in the scripture. And if you were to Google uh, the words red heifer, R-E-D-H-E-I-F-E-R, and, and ask, why on earth is it, are all these people looking for the red heifer? Because that's one of the necessary uh, sacrifices. And uh, almost every time there is one born in the world, these Orthodox Jews uh, get on a plane and they go over there to investigate this red heifer to find out if it is indeed a completely red heifer because one of the things they, they want for the temple sacrifices is they want a red heifer to sacrifice. Just this morning, I happened to pop up the news in Israel just to see what was going on. That's what I found out. It was the 13th weekend in a row that they were having a protest. And uh, I found it really interesting that the rabbis were making a request, could we please sacrifice a Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount? And uh, in the current situation, that makes the Arab people, or the, especially the Muslim people, very, very angry. So they don't do that. So all these things are just you know, coming to pass right in front of our eyes. Uh, one of the things it'd be really, really easy to do uh, in Bible geography is to think that uh, Israel here, you know, that, that some of the places are hundreds of miles from each other. Let me just put it to you this way. State of Israel is about the size of the, um, the I should say, the nation of Israel is about the size of the state of New Jersey. That's about the size of it. 
And one of the things that you you really realize is that you're you're standing there and you're getting instruction on one Bible story, and uh, lo and behold, you kind of turn around and say, "Oh yeah, by the way, right over here," and it's not far away at all. Oh yeah, there was another Bible story from right over here, and that's what makes it just really, really astounding. Again, you know, God chose to reveal His glory. That is to teach you about himself by using the land of Israel, by using the Holy Land. And this is why people like Jerome, who translated the uh, Bible, he called the the land the fifth gospel. And, And what he was saying was that seeing and understanding the land just turns the light on for the other four gospels. And you really realize, oh, I, I, you know, I see this better. I tried to illustrate it a minute ago by saying it's almost like a, like a cardboard pop-up, you know, when, when you're reading your Bible. Um, we'll go next over here to the other side of uh, the, uh, this is also on the Mount of Olives. You can see there are a number of uh, cemeteries. These are all cemeteries up here and tombs up here. Why is that? Well, it's because the Jewish people believe in the prophecy of Zechariah, that when the Lord comes, he is going to come, and he is going to stand there on the Mount of Olives. And for all practical purposes, they want to be first in line, you know, when, when that time comes. And here is a, another picture of uh, the Mount of Olives. Down here at the bottom is the Church of All Nations, and you can't see it really well, but there are olive trees right here. There is the the street that I was talking about, the descent that comes down, goes right through here. Our group had the opportunity to go over to another area. It's a very large stone enclosure, probably has, oh, I would imagine 50 uh, olive trees in there. And we just had a wonderful time of quiet contemplation. Pastor Shaw gave a challenge to us over there. Because the Garden of Gethsemane has to be in this very area right in here. Gethsemane refers to an olive press. You remember that Jesus, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood. This is what our Lord endured for all of us. And again, what the Lord is doing is he is communicating to us in a very powerful fashion and showing us with these actual places that we see in the land of Israel, he is showing us a great deal uh, about himself. Showed you this picture this morning. This is on the southern side. So if you're thinking about what I said a minute ago, here's your eastern gate. So the south is over in this direction, and I illustrated this morning the southern steps would be over here. It is known as the Ophel, O-P-H-E-L, and uh, you can see here are the southern steps. By the way, the very large crowd that was here, many of you have heard of uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. It was actually his group. You know, Craig pulled us aside and said, hey, I think that's him over there. And so I actually took a picture of him, and sure enough, it was him. But uh, they had a very large group up there. But these are the southern steps I was referring to. And you could, this is what it would have looked like back in the day uh, with the, the steps that it would have been here. And here's what it's like uh, when I say back in the day, back in Jesus' time, that's what it would have looked like. Remember, you've got your Byzantine and other uh, others who have built since then.
But nevertheless, we absolutely know Jesus Christ sat on those steps. Jesus Christ walked on those steps. He uh, taught his disciples. He contended with Pharisees right there on those steps. And so, again, it's a, a really, really powerful reminder of what it means to say that he is there. Here's a better picture of what I was talking about a minute ago with the uh, olive trees here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we were right across the, the this road right here. There's the road that we were talking about that we walked down. We had a beautiful time there and just a wonderful time of uh, contemplation. So what's all this about? This is about finding, seeking after, and finding the promised Lord in the promised land. What's the promise that we have in the book of James? Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. That's the promise we have from God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So whether it is in uh, the scripture or taking the opportunity to do something like going to the Holy Land in order to better understand scripture, in whatever way, here's the confidence you have. If you draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. We're talking here about finding the promised Lord in the promised land. And here's the joy of it. He's coming back and... uh, I think there will probably be Holy Land tours during the, uh, during the millennium. If there's one on the Emmaus Road, count me, look forward to me being right there in the front of that line. I'm sure hoping there's replays in heaven because I surely would love to hear that message from the Lord that he gave to the two men on the road to Emmaus where beginning at Moses, he showed them what things Christ must suffer and enter into his glory. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, I do praise you that you have revealed your glory in such a poignant and powerful way for us that this very day we can go to places in Israel and we can see the very places that you described, that that your miracles were described. We can stand at times on almost the very spot where you were when you proclaimed and taught and instructed your disciples Now, Father, I do praise you tonight that we have such a clear revelation of God, what Peter called a more sure word of prophecy. And I ask tonight that you would help every one of us to be strengthened in our faith and have greater faith because of what we have seen about the Holy Land. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.